0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Have you ever been stuck? I spent a month on the floor, overwhelmed with stress. So when it finally went completely out and I was screaming on the floor in pain, I called Dr. Sarno.
0: The pain is generated in us when we put ourselves under pressure to be perfect and good. I was so bad personally. During a radio show, I had to lay down on the floor... It was such a
2: great barometer of what was going on inside of me.
1: What do you mean psychological? I feel it. You think I'm making this pain up in my arm?
2: I must have spent 15 years of my life in this position. Your body's telling you, take a break and let some other person be awesome for a little while.
1: (laughs) There's such a strong cultural mindset that the only legitimate way of treating disease is by giving drugs. You know, my dad was
0: hit by a car. And he was killed. Feelings. That's what we're talking about here.
2: I've been creating pain so as not to
1: deal with things. I had diarrhea for six months, and it turns out I was just scared shitless. That is one angry foot. I was working four jobs. That was too much.
2: It was too much.
0: And that fury will evoke physical symptomatology as a defense against the rage. I mean, rather than burning down the capital, they are turning that anger against themselves. Right? Exactly.
1: Why isn't this being looked at?
2: They say enlightenment isn't in the attaining of truth; it's the removing of lies.
0: Talk about life and death.
1: And when I say we, I mean the human race. I believe in finding a way out of this, but it's going to be a long road.
0: Many people say you saved my life. All of this because of one simple idea. The fact that the mind and the body are intimately connected.
2: That's the whole story.
0: This was fun being in your documentary.
2: Hey folks, Mike White coming at you with a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is an interview that I did recently with Michael Galinsky and Suki Howley, two independent filmmakers who have been around for as long as I've been around, apparently, making films. They had films in the New York Underground Film Festival in 1995. I had a little stupid film not a narrative not nearly as difficult to make movie in there as well so i think we've crossed paths a few times but i've never actually sat down and talked with these folks before so it was absolutely fantastic to get to talk to them about their career as well as their latest film which is all the rage saved by sarno now let's go ahead and play that interview enjoy the show how long have you guys been working together We've been working together since
0: 1994. I was in film school and met Michael, and he convinced me to drop out of film school and use the money to make a feature about underground music scene that he was part of at the underground. He was in a band in the 90s called Head and was taking a lot of band photos that bands were using for promo shots. I remember thinking, well, if the film could look like his photos that he takes at the bands it'll be awesome. It'll just totally represent what it's like to be in a band. And so that film eventually became half-cocked, and we shot it in 94, and took about nine months to edit.
2: So it was our first child, really. Suki, had you been in filmmaking before that? How did you get interested in that?
0: I had been into film, and I was making a bunch of videos in high school, and I went to Wesleyan and majored in film, and I took a year off and, you know, I wanted to make movies. So I moved to Hollywood to make movies, but it wasn't quite right. And I I knew I wanted to make, you know, direct a film, but I didn't know how to do it. And I wasn't really getting any closer by working in editing rooms in Hollywood. And I volunteered at the, at Sundance. And I remember the, the programmer at the time was like, well, you should go to film school. If you want to make movies, that's the, the way to do it. And so I applied to NYU and so I moved to New York. But it was—I'd already learned everything I needed to know in college, and it was kind of a a little bit demoralizing because to be at film school. So I was more than happy to drop out when Michael suggested it.
1: (laughs) Well, and and that's why I suggested she drop out because she was bitching and complaining and saying, you know, they favor certain people, and it's just—it's stupid. People, you know, they're—they're just teaching me the stuff I already learned better in college. And that's when I said, you know. Well, why don't we make a movie? And Suki uh, Suki's being a little modest, but when she came back, she also that summer um, was the director's assistant on Party Girl, and she shot listed the whole movie because the director was a theater director, and she was a great acting director, but she didn't really know what you needed to do to make a movie. And so Suki basically, you know, shot listed the whole movie. And I was like, see, you can do this. Why are you, why are you, stop it already. Let's just do it.
2: That's the second time Party Girls come up on this podcast over the last few months. Well, you know, I'm the drug dealer in the movie. Oh, okay, cool. I actually saw that movie (laughs) theatrically when it came out.
1: Uh, he
2: sells Parker Posey drugs. Nice. I got him the job. That's awesome. (laughs) Now, how about you, Michael? You were into music. You were into photography. Had you done filmmaking before this point? I hadn't really, but actually, um, I
1: had... Audited three weeks of sight and sound at NYU. I, I went to NYU. as was a religious studies major, but I was always um, around film students. Um, and so, when I graduated, it was actually a friend of mine who was partially involved in um, introducing me to Suki. With my friend Diana Elliot was taking sight and sound, and so I just started going to the class. And I shot one of her projects. And. Then I went on tour with my band, so I didn't do it again. But I got the basics of what needed to happen to make a film, even in those three weeks, because it it was a pretty intensive class. And that's why I was like, oh, film is interesting. And I was really into the idea of documenting the world that we were part of, but I didn't feel like I could make a documentary because I had that colonialist idea of documentary that it had to be about the other. In other words, if Uh, you were kind of too much a part of something. You didn't have a quote-unquote critical distance that was needed to document it. And now I find that to be just an awful idea, that the only people who can document something are the overlords, or the people who are are smarter and better, you know? And it has this total colonialist um, connotation, and I feel exactly the opposite now. At the same time, we didn't feel like we could make a documentary because everything was on film at the time, and you couldn't – Really afford to shoot sixty or even fifty hours of footage, so we wrote a script trying to document what that world was like, and had everyone play themselves.
2: Did Halfcocked, Am I remembering correctly? Did that play the New York Underground Film Festival? It did. It played second
1: year, okay. and it also played. It was either the first or second year Chicago Underground. But but I will tell you that before that happened, we got rejected by thirty five straight film festivals it was really demoralizing because we felt like, and, and at the time it was really weird because everybody else's films were blowing up. Suki's roommate was doing the music for Go Fish, which was a kind of a big deal at the time. And they shot kids in her bedroom while she was editing Half Cocked in the Closet. So it was kind of like, and Flacker. Yeah. So it just seemed so weird that nobody would understand it. And it, it was even weirder because we had our, cast and crew screening at this place called Millennium Film Workshop, and our friend Phil brought uh, Godfrey Cheshire to the screening, who I knew his name because I grew up in Chapel Hill, which is where I am now, and he was the local film critic, but I, I didn't actually meet him at the screening. He just wrote an incredible review in Variety, and we had no <laughs> idea what was happening. So we started getting all these calls from everybody in the world, and we had no idea what was going on. Someone's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, uh, Godfrey Cheshire wrote this amazing review in Variety, and even that didn't get us into a single festival. It was it was weird. And so what we did was we actually we had sixteen millimeter prints. So we threw it in the van and we showed it in rock clubs. We toured with a band or even without a band and just showed the movie in rock clubs. Because we took it right to the audience where the audience was. Well
2: what was the reception uh, at these places and did this help you then move on to something bigger and better, or was this just kind of like your one attempt and then nothing happened afterwards?
0: It went over pretty well. Um, in the rock clubs, you know, we'd plug into the soundboard and throw up a sheet over the stage and show the film and it would be a little noisy sometimes and so it was hard to hear because everyone was mumbling in the film. But it was it went over well and uh I'm not sure that it, it propelled us on to bigger and better things. It was a difficult experience because, you know, when you're in a band and you go on tour, you're you're creating the show. You may be playing songs that you've played a million times, but it's it's actually happening immediately right there. But when you turn on a projector every night, it's just the same thing happening over and over and over. So it was a little bit of a, you know, like, okay, we're, we did that, and that's done. Um, and so when Michael went on tour in Spain and came up with the idea for our second film, which would be taking half cock on tour in Spain while shooting our second film. I was uh, I was a little like, oh my god, you got to be kidding! Um, but that's what we did.
2: Was that radiation?
0: That, that was, was radiation, radiation.
2: It's, and it's it's a it was a similar film.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, where Unai, the main character, is a Spanish film promoter. I mean, sorry, music promoter who um, brings American bands over to take them on tour in Spain, and he actually was. Sleepyhead promoter in Spain, and Michael knew how to write his lines in the script perfectly. He just he he played himself very well, I think.
2: Now I remember going into the uh, I think it was the either the two thousand one or two thousand two I think two thousand two Toronto International <laughs> Film Festival and seeing Horns and Halos there, and it completely blew me away. I loved that movie. Can you tell me how you guys made that transition from the narrative films into doing documentaries, which you've kind of, as far as I know, you've stuck to ever since 2002?
1: Yeah. There was a direct connection, which is that uh, as we finished Radiation, I took the first job I ever had, which was at a music website called In Sound. And it was kind of awful. I hated it, having to go to an office. Um, but one of the things I got there was a press release saying that this underground publisher was republishing a discredited biography, George Bush. So I, I vaguely knew him and he published books by several people that we knew, so you know, we were acquaintances. And I called him and I said, So what's the story with this? And he screamed at me, Yeah, I'm putting out the book. I, I'm really busy right now. You can come over on uh, Saturday if you want, I'm doing the sweeping and mop and, and we can talk about it and he hung up the phone. So I had to call him back and say, Well, where are you and what is the sweeping and mop? And it turned out he was the super of a building and he squatted the basement as his publishing company. So, we filmed him telling so the book as he swept and mopped the hallways, which he had to do every Saturday. We walked up shooting, and that's the first stuff you see in the movie.
0: We actually were kind of like, you know, very aware that you need a good character to um, make a, build a movie around. And, and once we walked up and saw him doing the sweep and mop, we thought, okay, we got a good character. <laughs> He's going to be able to tell the story in a, in a very interesting kind of way. It was definitely uh, in reaction to how difficult it was to make the narrative. Uh, film in Spain on film that we then said okay we've got you know video cameras were just coming out and being a viable option for for making a feature on and you know it was something that we could do he, he could shoot and I could do sound and we could do the interviews together and it seemed much more possible and like not as uh, as difficult as, as it had been getting a whole crew together and getting all the equipment and getting everything that you needed ahead of time to make a narrative film. So that was sort of yeah. how that
2: switch occurred. I was really disappointed that, that that film didn't become bigger, but it felt like the the cards, the whole deck was really stacked against you with that.
1: Yeah. Our last day shooting was September 10, 2001, and it was a film about uh, kind of a negative portrayal of George Bush. And it wasn't really a super negative one, but like literally the next day the towers fell and no, and we were almost done editing. I mean, the, the last shoot was Sandra moving out of the, the basement that he had been in. So it was just kind of like the end credit shot. We were, the film was pretty much done. And so it was, I mean, it was tough for the next year and it was actually, we, we showed a 94 minute cut at Rotterdam. which so we got into Rotterdam, some stuff, which was lucky and we watched it there, and we were like, oh, my God, this sucks. And we cut out 40-something minutes, and we put in a new 25 minutes. And um, and then a couple weeks later, showed it at New York Underground, literally the day after our daughter was born. Like, we finished laying off the tape, and Suki went into labor. <laughs> like, literally, like, that night. And then the next day, we showed the movie. I'd like to say my parents were so happy because they got a two-for-one because the baby was coming two weeks early and they were coming to New York for the screen and they got to see the baby too.
0: Yeah, and it went over well. It was starting to pick up steam a little bit by that. I guess that's March, you know. It was like, yeah. you know, people were starting, the ice was thawing a little bit about, you know, being patriotic and not being able to say anything bad about our president. And But you talk about uphill climb. I think it was when we were taking it to Toronto, we were looking for, uh, for publicists. You know beforehand, and we sent out packages to about five different publicists and literally four of them said, "I don't know about this. my package came and it was open, and it said it had been inspected by the u s Postal service, so they were all a little freaked out, yeah, and they they weren't they didn't even work with us it was weird yeah, and it said this has been inspected by the Postal
1: service and you know we sent them from our local Post office. So we, I mean, it was obvious and it was, it was weird and it freaked people out. Uh, and it was a weird time. <laughs> yeah. The beginning reaction was muted, but eventually people seemed to appreciate it, you know, and it actually got shortlisted for the Academy Award. And at that time, you weren't allowed to tell anybody and they didn't announce it. so nobody knew that was uh, reassuring. I think, you know, more people saw it than you might think. And what's interesting now is that Sander Hicks was running for Congress in New York. So maybe people start to pay attention again, but sooner is the main character.
0: The reaction to that film felt very um, genuinely good. And I remember we were at the Flaherty Film Seminar that summer um, with the film. And, you know, it felt like a really in-depth, robust discussion of the film and how it fit into political films of its time. And that, you know, was also very um, gratifying to have that happen
2: it's interesting to talk to a couple who are also partners when it comes to making films. And I'm curious, how do you guys divide up the work when you are listed as, you know, co-producers, co-directors of, of these different films?
0: Filmmaking is so collaborative. You know, it's like you have to have a million people help you make a film. And so I've always thought it was kind of funny to have there be this auteur who is the one who directs, um, and we kind of see it we have a company called rumor and there's basically three of us um and it's we have all it's just now we all direct because it's hard to say how we divide up the work we all eat breathe sleep you know the film when we're working on it and we tend to work on films for a really long time for many many years at a time so it, you know it becomes all of our baby so to speak that said michael shoot technically and I edit technically, but, you know, and David does a lot of graphics, um, David Balanson, our third partner, and he, um, you know, but we're all talking about the story and how to craft it and how to put it together like all the time.
2: In some of the documentaries that you guys have done, you, you don't necessarily say this is why we made this documentary, but you definitely have that in all the rage. I don't want to, you know, just, sit here and tell you what it is so i'm going to ask you if you could how did you come to decide to make all the rage
1: um it, it's a very long story starting when i was in second grade um which is that my father almost died of a bleeding ulcer um and he was a psychologist who clearly had some stress in his life um and then a he got better, but a couple weeks later, he we had a fender bender, and I'm I mean I'm a second second grade I kind of remember, but it was so minor that it was nothing. But he got an incredible whiplash that plagued him for years until someone finally gave him Dr. Sarno's book, um, Healing Back Pain, or The Mind Body Prescription, or one of them. And as a psychologist, he totally got the idea that's described in the book that the repression of our emotions is the primary driver of most back pain problems. It's that repression which is a distraction from the emotions. Uh, that drives the problem. He read the book and he immediately understood what was going on and he got better really rapidly and he bought boxes of the book. And my dad was a, a cheap man, but he bought the book. So anytime anyone would complain about back he'd give it to them. So it was kind of always around when I was growing up, just this idea of this book that had saved my dad's life. And then when I have a twin brother and when we had both finished college, he was in graduate school and he got such terrible hand pain, they called it RSI, that he couldn't drive or type. He gave us his car. He, he was literally handicapped and he had to use a, like an early speak and say typing mechanism that he got like an NIH grant for in order to stay in school. And my dad kept saying, go see Dr. Sarno, read Dr. Sarno's book, but he, you know, he didn't really buy it because he was very science oriented. Finally, when he was told he had a surgery to carve away part of the bone in his neck to free the nerves, my dad blew up and he said, if you don't go see Dr. Sarno, I'm, I'm, I'm literally not talking to you again. So three weeks later, my brother calls me up, and he wants his car back because he went to see Dr. Sarno, and it totally made sense to him, and he got better. So I read the book at that point. My back was out once or twice a year for like two or three days at a time, you know, like stuck on the floor, couldn't move. But it would, it would always get better really quickly. Um, but I read the book, and I didn't have a back problem for 10 years. Then when, you know, shortly after finishing Horns and Halos, actually, um, which was a very frustrating process, we had recently um, had a, a daughter. So I had like a two-year-old daughter. We were starting two other documentaries. I was under incredible amounts of stress. And that's when my, uh, my back went out in an insane way. And um, I, I ended up in Dr. Sarno's office myself. And I'd been reading the book when it went out, you know, but it just wasn't helping. Finally going to see him and, you know, kind of the, the force of that process helped me to start to get better. And I asked him if he could make a movie. And he said, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of when it started in 2004. But we couldn't figure out how to make the movie. So it kind of went on hold. Because it just, we could, a we couldn't get any funding, which is also stressful. B, you know, we were do other projects. Yeah.
0: Go ahead. Yeah, and that idea that I was talking about before about needing a character in, in order to build the story right. around it, and um, you know, Dr. Sarno was very much a doctor, and that's what he, you know, wanted to be in the film, and he wasn't necessarily very emotionally present as a character, which you know makes sense if you're a doctor. But that meant that it was really difficult to figure out how to build scenes to tell the story and to, to see a, a guy, you know, going up against all odds. I mean, there is some of that in the film with Dr. Sarno, you know, battling his colleagues and, and the dismissive looks that he gets from everybody. But it was, it wasn't enough to build a film. Um, and so at that point, my back went out
1: again in 2011 at the end of Battle for Brooklyn and all the stress related to that. And, um, that's when I screamed grab the fucking camera while making this movie.
2: And, and that's kind of how it all came to be. How do you approach Dr. Sarno? Is he open to this idea? Yes and no. He wanted to get a movie made. He really he, he,
1: he knew that that would help get the message out. But he wasn't really someone who wanted to be a character, so that was difficult. So that when, when my back went out and I figured out, okay, I can be a character through which we can help the audience emotionally engage with these ideas, Then we were able to kind of weave together the two different ideas, like what Dr. Sano talked about, but also having a personal experience. Because part of the problem was also finding other patients. We couldn't find other patients that were willing to go to him. It it was It's hard to get someone to be emotionally naked on camera, and it didn't actually feel fair in that same kind of non-colonial way, like to say, hey, will you be this character?
0: The film, we like to say, is an essay film. And so it doesn't really follow a, a charted, you know, a regular documentary film path. And um, it doesn't fit into that, you know, role per se. So that made it more difficult to convince people to, you know, give us money or to find the funding for the film. Um, and I'd like to say that it because of the nature of the way it's structured, it really resonates with audiences and we've seen this over and over again that people feel like because you know Michael's there and you get enough of Michael's story but you're not it's not too detailed and too personal but it's just enough that it it connects with their understanding of their own emotions and then people go home and say they talk about it for hours with their family or whoever you know went to see the film but that it's more difficult for film or regular, you know, documentary programmers to understand the that the film is working in a certain way. So just like with a lot of our films, and we sort of talked about this a lot already, it's been a little bit difficult to get the film out. But when we do, it goes over really well.
1: Yeah, it's like you you mentioned earlier with horns and halos. That was frustrating because we'd always show the film and people would say, "Well, you know." It's confusing. I can't tell whether what you think of the characters. Do you think that you know they're charlatans? Blah blah blah. And we're like, well, what do you think? We think. And they said, well, it's it's confusing because they're good in some ways, but they make mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we think. But like, people want you to give them clear and actionable information rather than tell a story how it really is. And and so it, there's just all these different frames that are uh, of expectation that films are supposed to fit into. And that's especially true for people who are very enmeshed in the culture of film, right? So if it doesn't do what other films are doing, they feel like you don't know what you're doing. So, you know, with, with the, re, the reviews of um, all the rage, it's been quite interesting, to say the least.
0: And it's funny you bring up Porns and Halos, but I think it's since then gotten even more entrenched, this notion of how you tell a, a documentary story. And it's not so much, you know, about doing it in the narrative style or an essay kind of philosophical, metaphorical style. That, that doesn't necessarily compute anymore in a documentary. It's more like, what am I supposed to think and how am I supposed to feel? Um, yeah, you know,
1: like there was this whole, it, throughout the 2000s, the whole mantra was, you know, how is this film going to lead to change? And as far as we concerned, were concerned, that was like, you know, how, how can we use this film as propaganda? And how are you going to construct this film as propaganda? And when you say that to funders, they say, well, that's not true. You know, the things that we're doing are really important, you know, important work that people need to know about these things. And I'm like, yeah, well, Goebbels felt the same way, you know, but it's still propaganda if you already have an idea of what it is that you want to prove, then you're not really, you know, making an exploration. I will tell you that when I told that to people, it did not go over well. <laughs> they didn't want to hear it. But I, I, but I think it's true. It's like, if you, if you already know what the story you're going to tell is before you start telling
0: it, then, then you're making propaganda. I don't know. That's the definition of propaganda, right? Which is, which is funny because it kind of leads to a similar critique that we have in the film of the medical establishment, um, which is, you know, a, when you're part of a system, it's very hard to take a critical distance, step back and see what, what it is that, um, you are promoting. And so I think it is very difficult for the medical system truly to understand what Dr. Sarno has to say, because it doesn't follow what they've been taught and what they've been trained to believe.
1: But, but that also goes to, like, it's interesting, like, most of the reviews have kind of deemed the film as being advocacy-oriented, but complaining that it's not even very effective at advocating. Because it's not advocating, you know, but because it's it's making a point that they don't already believe or they think is, is, you know, woo or unscientific, then they think even making that point is unscientific. So you're arguing this point, but you're not being very convincing because you're saying that the ideas are quite complex. So it's like it doesn't fit what they think it's supposed to be. So therefore we failed. And, it, it, you know, it's very, it's weird. It's a very strange response to the film. It, it's also interesting because the film is uh, largely about the idea that our culture kind of demands that we repress our emotions and that this is not healthy for us, that this causes us to have both pain and other health problems, right? So that's essentially what the film is about, that the, that, you know, the repression of our emotions is not a good thing. Now, all of the reviews in the mainstream press have personally shamed me for being in the film and having emotions and it's kind of like did, did you did you guys watch the movie like it's so strange that that would be their response to this movie that's making that point although i think it makes people uncomfortable and i think that's what that's what the movie's about but the response actually just kind of further shows that that is true
2: well obviously the american medical association knows exactly what they're doing when it comes to pain management and that's why we don't have an opioid crisis in this country.
1: <laughs> well, you yes. know exactly what they're doing, which is why we have a very robust medical industry. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot of money.
0: You're absolutely right. It's a problem that has no solution, and yet we're flailing about and keeping, and keeping our blinders on when it comes to things that, that have actually proven to work. Yeah,
1: and it's hard to, you know, like, even say working with a publicist, she's trying to explain that to news people, and they just don't—they just can't even compute it. Like she's trying to, you know, pitch TV and stuff, and they're like, "What does he do? <laughs> what does he do? What does he do? What do you do?" Well, you <laughs> think emotionally
0: rather than physically, but how do you do that? Yeah. It is hard. It's hard. It's so you're simple you're... to say. It's just not. It's hard to do it's it's difficult to face your, your emotional demons and um, understand how to do that in a productive way.
2: Well, it's really tough when it comes to medical stuff because so much of what we see is it almost feels fad-based. You know, the, this is the new diet for you. This is the new exercise. This is the new whatever. And it seems to change every few years. So it's very difficult. And it's all based on science. Hmm. <laughs> no, it, it, it is. But that's the problem is like,
1: the whole gold standard of uh, randomized control trials give us information, and we desperately want information. But if that information is based on kind of false vacuums in which you control for certain things, so you're only looking at one aspect, you're basically creating a, a non-real-world situation that doesn't give you useful information. And it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking over the table right now. My, my brother just gave me a book called How Healing Works, by a guy named Wayne Jonas. And it's blurbed by, I mean, everybody, like the former Surgeon General, the former head of, like, um, the Army, all these different people, because he, this guy ran all these studies of studies. So he would look at, like, 150 different studies of kind of a similar thing to see what all of those different studies taken together said. And they, they would look at all the data to see if the data was good, and they would rank the studies on their usefulness, et cetera. And, you know, that's what he did for years and years. And he also was a family doctor. He worked, you know, with patients. And what he came to see over the last 30 or 40 years is that 80% of healing comes from within. So this is like your scientist, scientist, scientist. And, and it's interesting because nobody's writing about the book. You <laughs> it's a really well written book. Like I, I read it, and I was like, this is so great. And I Googled it and nobody's written about
0: it. Yeah, it's, it's that 20% of healing you know, when looking at the study, 20% of healing comes from the actual agent, you know, the pill or the surgery or whatever that's delivered. Or the delivered. visit to the
1: doctor, the healing agent, the interaction with the medical
0: system. What he has shown is that even that, you know, direct um, activity is there's like 80% of that is your belief in the ritual of going to the doctor and your belief in what the doctor tells you and that this agent, this pill or the surgery or whatever is going to help you. And when you believe it, then it actually does work. And when, you know, when you don't, it doesn't. But but also there's three
1: factors, which he people who, uh, well, belief is important, ritual is important, and community is important. So people who have a strong community around them that supports them in their illness and that they, again, it goes to belief, but if there's, they have a sense of ritual in their lives. And so for instance, he had one patient whose lungs, he kept having pneumonia, an 80-year-old guy. And he just was having trouble breathing and they kept having to intubate him every every year or so. He kept getting and he didn't want it to happen because it's really it's not comfortable, it's dangerous. So the doctor, knowing who he was, and they talked a lot about his religious faith, said to him, I want you to picture can you, is there one space in your lungs where you can you feel a little space? And he said, Yeah. And he said, I want you to focus on that and I want you to I want you to picture it growing. I want you to, to you know, as you said, you know, you're kind of believing in the Lord. I want you to work with the Lord. And and have that space open up. And he went home thinking the guy was going to get intubated, but he came back next morning and he was being checked out. So, you know, and he and so it was only because of this work that he started to think that might work. And so he started trying that technique with people. He has another story of a woman who had congenitive heart failure, an 85 year old woman who was like a matriarch in this long, in this big family, and and the family was there and they were supporting her, but she just she felt worthless because her sense of herself. With someone who took care of others. So he took those 40 people that were hanging out in the lobby and said, I want you to go in one by one, and I want you to ask her for advice. I want you to tell her your problem. And by the end of the day, she was much better, and the next day she went home. And she died at home a couple months later, but it was clear that this kind of like, you know, being true to our sense of ourselves and who we are and all these different things really play a big role. And if doctors don't, you know, engage in that understanding, they're not going to be able to help you. You know, if it's all this biotechnical approach rather than the biotechnical coupled with a spiritual mind-body understanding is wildly more powerful. And, and this is the, the, the point is that this is not an anti-science guy who wrote this book. This is the scientist of all scientists. You know, he works like at the head of all these organizations. And he's basically saying so much of what I was taught, so much of what I know actually isn't that useful. And these, these randomized controlled trials largely aren't. Are a problem because they give us a false sense of what the data means, and we're not looking at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is much more complex. So he's basically everything he's saying in this book is using science to prove what Dr. Sarno has said is true, and yet he's still not, he's not even aware of Dr. Sarno.
0: And when when you think about it, you know that well, I'm not sure why it's so difficult to understand. You know that when we have emotions, we have a physical response because you know when we're embarrassed, we blush. When we hear a great song, we get goosebumps. You know, it's like these things are directly related to the emotional experience that we're having at that moment. Science never really deals with that, those things. When we get scared and we're running, you know, the hair stands up on our neck or whatever. Those things are are actually happening and we all have experienced them. But it seems like, oh, that's, that's not science. That's not medicine.
2: I can't talk to you about All the Rage without asking you about the interviews, because you've got some real stellar interviews in this film. How easy or difficult were those to set up? Oh, simple. You know,
1: it only took about five years to get Howard Stern. Yeah, just like years. Um, and, it, and then it took some other shenanigans as well. Actually, we finally got to his agent, our partner David did, and Don Buckwald, and he said, nope, he's not going to do it. So David said, can we interview you? Because you're a patient of Dr. Sono as well. I said, ah, you don't want to talk to me. And they, he kept pressing. alright, alright, come on in. So he and Suki went in and did the interview. And afterwards, he, you know, he kind of got psyched up by it. He was like, and, and our partner David was like, well, you know, what do you think we need to do? And he's like, well, he need alright, I'll ask him. You know, <laughs> so the next day we got an email saying, okay, you have five minutes on this date. Uh, so we flew to new york and and we did it. and he gave us twelve minutes. And it was like twelve minutes of entirely usable footage. So we could have made we, we could have used all twelve minutes of it because he's a very good speaker and was very passionate about it. And with Larry David, it's actually very funny that we were working on another project, and um it was shooting all of these like kind of political things with famous people for the the guys who started ATTN, they had some other, like, they basically they, would, they had a big get-out-the-vote campaign, and they got money from Barry Diller or something. And so we were shooting this stuff. Um, and we were shooting Chelsea Clinton with them, and the kid was like, he's 21 years old, he could barely stand up. And we we're like, you need to call Dr. Sarno. He said, oh, man, when we shot that stuff with Larry David last week, he called that guy. He picked up the phone, he called that guy. And so we're like, oh, <laughs> that's how we knew that Larry David was a patient. Because um, he's never he'd never talked about it publicly. So we called him up, and I guess... David made it happen but that was it was just by chance yeah and Jonathan Ames was actually a friend of a friend so when he did his bit on um, the TV show we were able to get to him and he said sure actually he 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 didn't do it for a while but finally he agreed to do it
2: he was nervous You said that it took five years to get uh, Stern to agree to talk to you. And I'm curious, how many irons do you guys have in the fire at one time? Because I know that you're, you're doing cinematography on this film and Suki's editing that film and you're both directing this and just kind of going back and forth. But how many projects are you working on at one time? We have a lot. I mean,
0: mostly the a lot part is Michael shooting. He shoots a lot. And so then that's a lot that I have to go through. (laughs) Um, But, and, and, you know, that's much quicker. That's very immediate. And he's shooting and it happens and that's real time. And then to actually work with it takes, you know, a lot longer. And so there is sort of a lag of, you know, him building up a lot. He's the hunter-gatherer and getting a lot of stuff for me to work with and then it just takes some time to kind of go through it and not only is it a lot of footage but you know because pretty quickly you can sort of separate the meat from the tape or whatever that expression is and but you know it is often a very complex story that we're trying to tell so on top of you know there being a lot of shooting going on it's it's also difficult to figure out the best way to tell the story and that takes time for both of us to sit down together in the editing room and and fight about how we're going to tell the story. <laughs> I mean,
1: we have but a big part of it also is just funding because the way we make these things is you know, if you try to get funding, you, you miss it. It's gone. The thing's already happened. So we have to start mm-hmm. shooting and because of the way we shoot, it's really hard to make like a simple trailer or, or to get, I mean, there's some things, I mean, we have two projects that's just unbelievable we can't get funded. One's about um, a woman who grew up in the health angels and her father became a women of the witness protection program and and then there's murder and there's boxes of incredible photographs and no one wants to fund it and i can't i just can't even imagine it because it's this incredible story and we've 90 percent shot so there's things like that where we just don't you know it gets harder and harder for us to make these things and then finish them because like say with horns and halos we were able to to gut it out and make the movie and then we were able to sell it to hbo and to canada and to Latin America, and and make a little bit of money that sustained us for the next project. And then the next project we were able to sell and make a little money that sustained us. But like with Battle for Brooklyn, despite the fact that it was shortlisted for the Academy Award, no one wanted it. We were not able, and and, and we self-distributed it to theaters and then did Incredible in New York, but no one else would show it. And then it got shortlisted, and still no one else cared. Well, it's it's not so much
0: that no one wanted to show it, because actually there were a few offers, but they had become so much less. You know, it was the offers, everything had the, I guess there was just so many more films out there and, you know, it was so much more competitive. It was really interesting to see as time went on that, you know, they weren't great offers necessarily, but they were, were good. They were good enough offers and it's just what they were offering was just so much less. And it wasn't the possibility of sustaining us through the next project like it had been in the past. It's interesting because when Michael was saying, we're actually on the festival circuit now with a film called Working in Protest, um, which is directly related or is a product of what Michael's talking about, where you can't wait around for the funding and you just, when something's happening, you got to shoot. And so we had, on top of making these features that we were making, we would often, you know, there would be a protest um, happening that we thought was really important to document because, you know, in this sensationalized TV world, you get two minutes of, this, this is what happened and it's usually stilted and, you know, it's biased and it doesn't really tell the full story. And we got really frustrated by that. And so whenever we there was something happening that we felt strongly about around us, we would go shoot and, um, make a short little piece about that, that we would put up on, you know, the website and, um, more recently with Trump and and all of the activity and the rallies and everything that, and and also Bernie Sanders that came up with the 2016 election. Um, We found ourselves shooting many, many, many of these um, and seeing how they connected back to when we started in, in 2000. And even before that, when Michael started shooting a KKK march in right after high school, we started seeing these connections and the parallels and the KKK coming back and, um, thought maybe this could be a good time to put these short pieces together in sort of a compendium of, you know, a limited view of protests um, throughout, I guess, 30 years now, because 1987 was his its um, first shoot with the KKK march. Anyway, that, that idea that, you know, you just got to go do it because you, uh, you can't even make a prospectus or something to get people <laughs> to pay for it.
2: I thought that documentary filmmakers were all lighting their cigars with $100 bills, but apparently all that money has moved into paid protesting. So you guys should just attend some of these <laughs> as paid protesters, and then you'll have all the money in the world.
1: That was a dream plan. I think we'll start it right away you know, with all the rage, we've had a, a weird experience where a lot of festivals want to show the Working in Protest movie, but don't want to show all the rage because they see it as advocacy. But then, eventually, they'll say, okay, we'll show both of them, and we'll sell out all the rage, and it's hard to get people to see Working in Protest. But but the people who see it, dig it. I mean, we ju- I just got back literally on Tuesday from Greece, where I was showing at Thessaloniki Film Festival, and the response was really incredible there, because there's a lot of history of kind of Pushing back against against the government, and they really, they really appreciated
0: kind of seeing it from a different perspective in the U.S.,
1: which is kind of the idea of these, these pieces.
0: But that is an interesting phenomenon that, you know, the programmers want to, invariably, I mean, it happened, it happened more than, you know, I want to say that they would only want to show working in protest would, you know, begrudgingly say, yes, okay, all the rage. And then, you know, but all the rage would sell out because of Sarno's uh, just the way he's known and, and just loved by so many people, I think that is what it had to do with. That screening would sell out and working in protest would be, you know, it would be okay. The
2: attendance. I know you guys are busy as heck, but I'm curious if is there a way for people to keep up with you with all of your projects? Is there a good website for Rumor Inc?
1: It's yeah, just rumor.com, R U M U Um Most things are there. And then, you know, the different films have Facebook pages and. Yeah, but rumor, Rumor.com is really the warehouse of it all. And, you know, the one good thing about not selling on movies to other people is that we actually own all of them. So we have most of them are going to be up on Canopy, which is, you the library site. Um, the libraries have them. Um, and then almost all of them are going to be for sale. Like, we actually just re-scanned um, half-cocked. And it looks amazing compared to what it used to look like. So that's very exciting. We showed that in New York a couple weeks ago at the Quad, and it was it was awesome. So hopefully yeah, that's going to start playing around.
2: I'm so glad that that movie from 94 still has some legs. You know, it, it, well,
1: this is this interesting thing about kind of the work that we do, which is that it's kind of observational, right? So there's this other project I did in 1989 where I drove across the country and took photographs in malls and nobody gave a shit. It was like, yeah, there's people in malls. What, do, what do you, you know, They're kind of weird, ugly people in malls. Who cares? But when I put them online in 2011, actually right at the time we were finishing Powerful Brooklyn, they just exploded. And like this one site Mashable shared them. And in two days, their post got shared 182,000 times. Like that's how viral it went. Um, but what I, I was thinking about it and really what it is, is like after 20 years, these kind of things that we were involved in and we existed within have really cleared our memory banks. They're just gone, right? And once they're gone, they really spark in a different part in our brain. So the thing with those clan photos was very similar. Like it just really is like, oh my God, it's it's more of a nostalgia effect rather than a present memory effect. And I think that's the same thing say with Halfcock. It's now 20 years or 20, almost 25 years. And I think when people see it, it just is like, oh my God, I remember that time. And so it really, it, it has a different effect on our bodies even, like literally physically on our bodies via our brain. So I think that there's a lot of value in things that, You know, maybe in their time, they're not exciting enough. They may be not um, visually current enough, right? But later, they feel incredibly present because they don't have as much artifice to them. And so I think that those things have even more value in the future. And that's a big part of what, like, working in protest was about. It's not about making a point or being advocacy for the events. It's literally documenting them as they felt. And sometimes that's confusing.
2: Michael and Suki, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic.
0: Thanks so much for having us.